Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, and I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Yamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hi. And third-year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Hey, everybody. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Let's Get Psyched is not intended to replace mental health assessment and treatment. The information shared on the show is for educational purposes only. Well, on this episode of Let's Get Psyched, we're going to talk about documentation and open notes, part two. And again, we're lucky to have joining us Dr. Tony Thrasher. Dr. Thrasher is a board-certified psychiatrist employed as the medical director for the Crisis Services Branch of the Milwaukee County Behavioral Health Division. He received a psychiatric training from Washington University in St. Louis at Barnes Jewish Hospital, and he is the current president of the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry, a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, and president-elect for both the Wisconsin Psychiatric Association and Wisconsin Association of Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons, And you can currently see and hear him on the Psychiatric Times website, hosting a series of Mental Health Minute webinars. Tony, thanks for joining us on Let's Get Psyched. Thank you for having me. I really love those uh, Psychiatric Times webinars, uh, by the way. And and just two things about advertising, they're longer than a minute, but that's good. I want everyone to be encouraged. That is good. A minute would be annoying. A minute would be (laughs) such a tease, you know. Yeah, you just barely say the you, you you just barely get through your intro through all the qualifications and your accolades. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you didn't even get t- to tell me about you too. <laughs> Touche. Yeah, they 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 usually tell you to keep it under ten minutes, but I think they just like the uh, it's got a great brand to it, Mental Health Minute. So I don't see them uh, amending that anytime soon. Right. They, they should change it to Mental Health ninety seven seconds. There you go. It's <laughs> catchy. I kind of want to start things off. I had so many questions from that first show, and I'm so glad that we have you on as a guest. And I, one of the things I, I I don't know if how you're going to speak to this. I'm so eager to see how you're going to how you're going to answer is that the not just the terminology we talked about a little bit about that's used in the charting itself because the patients are going to see the note or potentially can see the note. It's recovery language. It's language that um, is uh, uplifting, uh, uh, health-oriented, life-affirming. And there's historically a group of words that psychiatrists and psychologists have used in the past that are not, are not that life-affirming. And that you could even turn them as offensive. Now, there was a study in the 90s that where they had professionals review charts, and 80% of charts contained language that was moderately to extremely offensive. And so I, th- I think this is a good thing. I'm hoping that we have grown as a group, as psychiatrists and psychologists. But um, I, they're not, I've noticed there's pushback, however, because now I'm going to have to change. I'm an old person, and now I'm going to have to change how I say things, and now I'm going to have to use all this woke language. And there's a little <laughs> bit of that going on. So I, I want to know what your opinion is on this whole matter. Uh, absolutely. I, first of all, I, I think you're calling out the really interesting what I'm going to call my Pollyanna moment here is when I first started talking about this, it was very much about how we should be protecting ourselves, mitigate risk, look out for these phrases, look out for these things, keep yourself protected. And I think that's very important, but part and parcel to that is what you just brought up. Not just how do we kind of deal with the open note, but how can we use it to our advantage? Particularly those of us that are psychiatrists and psychologists, we are professional communicators. We are professional interviewers. 
Very few specialties in medicine should be better with words than us. So to your point, how can we turn this around and really use it to our advantage to inspire hope in our patients, to really inspire them to come back and have more continuity without patient care, to have better compliance without patient medication? I think there is a way to spin this, not just from the medical legal, but also to the engagement, which is something many of us do, but I don't think we think about how we engage people and, and let alone using a note. When you think about it, how often do we get to see our patients? And the fact that maybe they may struggle remembering the great stuff that Tosha or Alan said to them three weeks ago. But now I can pull it up and I can look at it and remind myself of the cool hints they gave me and some different things to work on that we wouldn't have had pre-open note. And to those that are resistant to change, I fully understand. Change management is hard. But I do not think this is about woke language. I do not think it's about that at all. The words we need to change are words we need to change. I think I, I, I like what you said. I'm going to push back on it a little bit. I think that it is about woke language. And I use that term without, I know it's kind of been re it's been kind of respun in a very, in a more negative way. Um, so I think the folks who are resistant to woke language have a very, uh, have a good point, which is, um, worth acknowledging and 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 so i guess i'll start with their point because i'm gonna then say why i don't think it's what you know um the way but by changing people's language we are asking them to we're actually like changing their thoughts and we're asking them to change their we're mind you know we're quote mind policing them right and and there, and this is actually precisely why I think woke language is so important is um, and and I don't want to avoid that word just because it has connotations. Let's like be real that that is kind of in, in some ways um, what we're doing. And so there's this thing called the Sapir Whorf hypothesis where language and thought go hand in hand and there's art, there's soci society's thoughts and, and language can be kind of. Um, determined by knowing one will help you determine the other. For example, in our culture, you can buy, invest, and waste yourself time, right? As you can with money. And we have this other semantic expression in our society that time is money. And there's all these examples of this that like cultures in, um, in ice, snow areas have many more words for gray and white than we do because the safety of the snow determines whether people can walk on it. And cultures where rivers safety is really important have a lot of different types of words for green because that's like, you know, whether they're alligators or, or the safety of walking in the river at that time. So we have words like chief complaint, right? Which everyone, I think at some point went into medical school and was like, why are we calling this a complaint? That's really mean. And then we forgot about it and we just became the other. And now we say it all the time. And this may fo force us to change those things. And then also, and this may be performative, but I, I think this is an opportunity to say things like, um, I don't know, for me, I try to, in some of my notes or, or in basically all of my notes in my assessment, I might say 35 year old, uh, mother and sexual assault survivor um, instead of 35-year-old, insert ethnicity here, female and um, and trauma victim, right? I think there's like a very, you can say it in an empowered way. And then of course, I'd love to, if I'm, if I'm poking the bear like and bringing up whether we should mention ethnicity or not, I'd love to do that. 
Um, that's yeah. What uh, respond? <laughs> <laughs> Alan, you give me such a short premise to build off of. Um, <laughs> you know, re- re- really great points, and I, I think I think I can break them into at least three parts here. So first off, I, I like your distinction. I don't think it's a pushback. I think you are you're making sure that we understand that woke is not necessarily needing to be a pejorative or labeling term, which I agree with. I think one reason I push back on that is because I want people to go beyond that set of words. Uh, I want to use words that never came up that were pre-woke, things like non-compliant, uncooperative. Um, I think there's a lot of things we use all the time without, and we used to do this with things like, you know, addict. There's different ways. I'm not even a big fan of cry for help or attention seeking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm happy to, to, to go into that as well. So I think your point there is very solid. I also like, I think it is important that we talk to our patients that how we write is kind of how we think. It's actually, I mean, if you think about it, it's very much what we're trying to do with cognitive restructuring and a like in a lot of therapy as well. So why would it not apply to us? And I think that's a neat way to kind of change, manage people on board with this is I have found with the docs that I supervise, which are in a psychiatric emergency room, high acuity, a lot of time constraints, a lot of counter-transference, just a tad, just a tad, (laughs) a lot of high utilization with a lot of social determinants of health and complexity that those that really pay attention to their notes and pay attention to the language in their notes are happier now. They have less interpersonal issues with patients. They have less grievances just because they are being a little bit more mindful. It's not changing their note dramatically. So, so, so to your point, there's no study that you've done. No, there is no, this is anecdotal. You That's very interesting. Present. But that is, but I've definitely seen the people that take the time to kind of work on that have really enjoyed it and seem to be, it's now much easier for them. So, so to kind of close out your, your third part there is, I, I do think there, it's going to kind of change how we view things, but I don't think that's a bad idea. And I don't think it's going to be as complex as we know it. You just mentioned it. You said several times kind of phrases that you picked up during training. And we're all very familiar that medical school has hidden curriculums <laughs> in addition to other things, yes, which, sir. Sometimes can, which can have uh, some positive things, can have some very negative things. That's why it's hidden and not on the curriculum. And so from that context, I think if we can start restructuring and thinking about some of these things, I like the way you phrased uh, the sexual assault survivor. Um, I, I had a mentor and I promise you this is I'll close with this. He was very clear about when you're done with a patient, you try to provide more hope than they had when they first talked to you. And how our language does that, I think, is incredibly important. And sometimes the biggest thing we can do for people is acknowledge that we hear them. We respect what they say is valid. And we are going to bear witness to that suffering until we can figure out a way to make it better. And that's not easy to do because that doesn't come with a billable code and that doesn't have a neurotransmitter that we can always connect to it. But I think getting that type of language, the more we talk in that phrase, that phraseology, if you will, I think we're going to see less medical legal complications. I just think we're going to start thinking about things differently. And I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I just think it's a different way of documenting the same words you would have used just with a little bit more thought behind it. Then that will eventually become the wording that you use. Can I um, ask you a question, um, Tony, about um, when, uh, how, how to talk about personality disorders? Because I, I kind of, I see that, you know, with uh, as folks that are psychotic, they don't really have a firm grasp of reality and, and things are really kind of confusing sometimes. So, um, but with personality disorders, very uh, more likely, I think, to ask for their records and want to know what is in your brain. How am I coming across to you? So how can we... Ch- like chart low insight because that's typically 
uh, frequently a, a mark of uh, or an attribute or a trait of folks with personality issues. How can we describe our the course of treatment if they're it, 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 it's something that well we don't feel is they're ready to have that described to them um, yet because of the issue with insight and then how can we communicate to other providers about these issues? This is what I found where this has happened is that we put this dressed up changed language that doesn't quite accurately describe what's going on. And then we we go in person and we talk to the the, the, the other provider, the psychiatrist, typically for me. And then we say, oh, here's the real straight dope about what's going on with this person because we cannot put what actually is happening. What are your thoughts about this? And, and isn't that fascinating? And I don't think your experience is at all unusual, but I really think that is something that we got to think about is. While sometimes change is made and it's not the change that we want, but it doesn't mean that it's not a good change. And I think that's what I'm getting to with your comment is we should be able to discuss these things. And personality disorders, thank you for bringing it up, Aaron, is one of my favorites. Because if you look and do, and they have done studies on this, I, I can't cite them off the top of my head. But when you look at your typical ambulatory clinic, we know that the epidemiology of personality disorders is around 20%. And yet when you look at the charts of an average ambulatory clinic, they are not 20% PDs. And we know that schizophrenia, one to 2%, and all of a sudden it's 15 to 20%. That doesn't make sense, even when accounting for selection bias and access. So for me, personality disorders, I like to use the diagnostic criteria, particularly if I'm not so sure what we're dealing with. I'm not a, I think the more you dig into the epidemiology, the clusters really breed true. There's so much symptomatic overlap within the illnesses in a cluster. I don't get quite as hung up on that, but I like to use the education of what a personality disorder is. It's a longitudinal issue that has affected somebody throughout their entire lifetime in several key domains, such as interpersonal relationship, mood control, and impulsivity. And when you explain it like that to a patient, all of a sudden their eyes light up and they're like, yeah, this has been going on since I was nine. I moved to Seattle and it's the same as it was when I was in Denver. And it's the same as it was when I was in San Francisco. It's just the same. All this great makes- cities. Yeah, purely shout random. Purely, purely random. No, you're like, you're no like naming all my fantasy cities to live no, in. I, no I'm sponsorship was received for any of those particular <laughs> items. Um, but seriously, I, I think when you look at PDs, I think we as a field, and some of it has been actually non psychiatric physicians and non psychological mental health professionals that have given PDs some of the bad names that they have. When you really look at the criteria and you explain it to patients, I have rarely had a patient when I've explained their diagnosis to them that have not looked at me and said, thank you. That, that makes sense. It didn't make sense that I had bipolar disorder type 7.5 and I've been on 18 medications and none of them have worked to which I say, well, that makes sense. I wouldn't expect medications to mitigate the suffering that you're currently having. Have you ever heard about borderline personality disorder? It's incredibly common, very debilitating, but very treatable. And in fact, we've got a lot of data that with proper treatment, it has a better long-term prognosis than bipolar disorder. But nobody has said that to them because everybody's scared of saying BLPD when it's incredibly common. And for those of you out there that are taxonomy nerds, it's one of the earliest original psychiatric mm-hmm. illnesses. If yeah. you go back to the finer criteria and DSM-3 and that, uh, that initial work group. So uh, to me, Aaron, I apologize, you caught me on a soapbox, but I really no, think this, go is, for it. <laughs> this is such a neat area for all psychiatrists and psychologists to really dig into is there's nothing wrong with saying, I think what we could argue about is the term 
personality disorder isn't a good enough name, right? It sounds like you're insulting their personality. I don't like major depressive disorder either. I think that's a very politically soft way to say hellish suffering. Um, So I think we can change the names if we want to, but I think we're really doing our patients a disservice by saying this is the criteria of a personality disorder. And the cool thing is, is now that we know about it, and if you are on board with it, we've got some really interesting treatments we can work on. We've got some cool therapies that you can do, and I'm not just going to be bouncing you from one pill to another. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR, and we're talking to Dr. Tony Thrasher. We're talking about documentation and the era of open notes and all the controversies and difficulties that are uh, that emerge from that. Tosha. So I just want to clarify, because I'm not up to speed on what's been happening legally. So you were saying that the federal government has mandated that everyone everywhere needs to do open notes? So it's a little bit, I think what, how you said it is fair, but let me try to parse it out a little bit more specific. Please. There are two, <laughs> no, and, and believe me, Tosha, it's, it's a little bit confusing. And I think it's a good reminder to everybody that just because the federal government has mandated, doesn't mean it's going to roll out in a timely fashion to all 50 states, because as we've noticed, all 50 states uh, convey and conduct their business in a very different fashion. Um, so the, the federal rules are, A, the first final rule is all EHRs must have this capacity. So some of the EHRs have been saying, oh, we'd love to help you out, but our EHR isn't good enough. It doesn't have enough whatever. So we just can't do open notes. The federal government's saying that is no longer an option. Make it happen. So 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 there's an IT component, if you will. Then the second rule, which really came out from CMS. So now you're getting into Medicare, Medicaid funding, which affects predominantly everybody. They're saying, and on top of that access, we believe the patient has a right to have access to their note in a timely fashion, regardless of specialty. That's what they said. Now, how each individual state or each individual health system, academic versus private versus whatever, how they choose to operationalize that may be different. Okay, so I have another question for you. Um, I have always been writing my notes as if the patient could see my notes. Um, I have only recently encountered a a question that I think would be really helpful for you to, to run by you. The cases where I am more likely to mark a note as sensitive, meaning that the um, if the patient or the family asked for the note, they would not be able to get access to that note. Um, when I'm more likely to do that is in cases where there is a contentious custody battle going on and, you know, I'm needing to talk to mom separately. I'm needing to talk to dad separately. They're telling me things about each other that really would be um, difficult for the patient to know about, for the other party to know about. Um, so those, th- what what advice do you have for the child psychiatrists out there who are dealing with those families? Um, what what do you recommend we put in the note? What do you recommend we omit from the note? Well, the new final rules that we just talked about do give you two options for exceptions. Um, and those are, one is, where you believe the information is imminently dangerous to the patient. I would say those are fairly rare, but they're out there. The other one is what you're landing on right now, is there's an exception if your note is being used as part of a legal proceeding. Now, to me, that is an incredibly nebulous loophole. Because I'm wondering, are you including civil commitment in there? Are you saying any involuntary processing could fall? So once again, you can see why this is going to make a difference on how people 
interpret the overall federal guideline because you could find a way to safely um, keep those off of the open note because it's involved in a custody battle. I don't know if now could you get legal pushback? Because with anything, this is going to have back and forth in the courts. There is going to be case law that is generated. So maybe you block it and then somebody for one of the parties says, no, this is not legit. I want it unblocked. And so then all of a sudden, California has a new case law finding on custodial disputes tied to this case. But until that comes up and case law will take years to develop, I, I do think just to be called out for the audience, those are cases you are allowed to block as long as your system's okay with it. The one thing about those two exceptions, those blocks, is the federal guidelines do mandate the patient has a right to be heard on why they're blocked. In other words, we're going to take a little bit more of a customer service path. We just can't just say it's blocked too bad, so sad. Each individual system has to have a way to tell the patient that, give them a right to kind of talk to, say, a patient relations person who may explain it, or they may have the right to ask you. Because I think, honestly, if it's truly child custody, that's probably your best bet at utilizing that exception. Otherwise, then what I would suggest is if you are simply treating the person who happens to be in the custody dispute, you're probably going to be a bit more vague. However, if you are the child and adolescent psychiatrist who has been, for whatever reason, um, assigned the case, and so now you are an agent of the court, now you're dealing with a whole different sense of confidentiality and Mm. statutory obligation. So I think those are the two ones just to call out for the audience. Where are you? Are you just working with somebody who happens to be in a custody battle or yes. you yourself and your evaluations part of the custody battle? That's a mm-hmm. whole nother. Whole yeah. other. See, I, I think those are ones that would fit under the two exclude the what is called the privacy exception, which is all about legal legal cases, which once again, hugely nebulous. One could expand that into all sorts of things. And I have not seen how that plays out yet. So, so I have found myself in those situations, not really writing much in the note Um and just putting it, if there's like juicy details that I feel I need to know because I don't want to step into them and by mistake ask about them or I know like, oh, hey, don't ask mom about this because she's livid about it and she's going to take half the session and it's like, it's, you know, super disturbing for the kid and it's, you know, it went horribly. I'll put that in the post-it um, and not really put anything, which is again, like, well, not that, the, not that that's... We need to be spending a bunch of our clinical time writing a bunch of like soap opera stuff in the note anyway, if it's not helpful to the patient. But mm-hmm. um, it is limiting at times, especially if you're trying to clue a future provider into some of the pitfalls that they might be able to navigate away from that you either you have to make a choice. Am I putting this in the note and hiding it and, and pressing the, the, the heart or am I? For, for those who don't use Epic, that's the sensitive, little sensitive button. Um, and when, so so how often do you press the heart? And when can you press the heart? And and who is the arbiter of that? I mean, can you, can you be taken to task for wrongly pressing the heart? That will be up to each individual system and how they choose to roll it out. So it depends who you work for and the EHR that you're using and how they choose to audit I could see a future state where they audit that. And so many of them are kind of just expected, but I'm guessing there's going to be a threshold at some point in time and it's going to trigger a threshold, which then at that point in time will be like any other documentation where they talk to you. Um, I think the idea, remember that you are allowed to still keep your own process notes or the, the post-its, depending upon how you're 
what your preference and documentation is. As long as the information that you are not, that you're keeping in that and not sharing isn't about diagnosis, prognosis, or treatment, which I would argue in child custody, it isn't necessarily, right? Unless literally your diagnosis is PTSD because one of the parents is is sexually abusing them on a, on a regular basis uh, as a hypothetical example. That actually brings me to another thing though, which is that there are times when it feels like the diagnosis is something in the post-it note and here's why, right? So, okay, so I just had to do for my fellowship, I just had to do the IHI model, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement Modules. And they made this excellent point that um, the when, when we do uh, root cause analysis and we're looking for harm done to patients and we're doing all this process improvement looking for harm done, the definition of harm is basically real bodily harm that needs medical treatment and they don't talk about what's the harm done when you have misdiagnosed someone and they carried the wrong diagnosis for 15 years and they lost an enormous amount of their livelihood and, and identity and, and all this stuff, right? And we are essentially, um, at least in, in, I don't know, I think, I think many are pressured to come up with a diagnosis fairly quickly. So unspecified mood disorder. Hey, now, when are you going to decide? And and this really goes against humble medicine. And this really goes against slow medicine that like, okay, you get two sessions, you don't know yet, you really got to commit. Are you, is it bipolar? Or is it depression? And so, so then what ends up happening is like, we have our in the back of our head diagnosis that we can't actually write because maybe we have them on um, an SSRI. And we're thinking like, well, what if they're, but then if we write it, uh oh, we documented they have bipolar. And what if we cause a manic switch? And, and then, so we, you know, there, there can be these like competing things. And, and I've tried to be really um, transparent about it in the note by saying like, um, in the interest of diagnostic humility and diagnosing with unspecified mood disorder, suspicion is low enough for bipolar that SSRI may be helpful at this time. Patient agrees to the risks and benefits. However, um, consider you know cluster B contribution versus potential bipolar and like maybe a little description of what may what their their two day supposed manic episode where they were really excited and playing a lot of video games. Right, that's like not super impressive. What do we do with all of this? I have a couple thoughts. First off is that medical decision-making should drive documentation. Documentation should not drive medical decision-making. And I I got concerned listening to some of your stories that you were being told that documentation should drive medical decision-making. That is not... Our ability to make decisions is the main part of what makes us who we are, right? Another mentor used to say, you know, MD means make a decision. DO mm-hmm. means do do something because you can train anybody to be smart, but really what physicians are, are professional decision makers and complex decision makers while contemplating a lot of different parts of that puzzle. So I guess my initial thought is nobody should be pressuring you to get a diagnosis at a certain amount of time. And if they are, I would question what is the rationale for that pressure? I'm not aware of any best practice. I'm not aware of any diagnostic guidelines that tell you you should have a diagnosis in so many sessions. And in fact, most of the data on inter-rater reliability between psychiatrists and psychologists is not good. So one should argue we should all be a bit more cautious. And then, of course, you have the whole entire other argument about that. Are we trying to fit things into a nosological model of the DSM that may not be the best fit? That's a whole nother, yeah, oh, oh, yeah. whole nother topic I mean, for a whole nother day. But I, I can tell I you say, right now that the pressure you. is from admin, right? The pressure is from admin. The other thing is like, okay, I'm doing, I'm do, let's say you're doing couples therapy. Oh, well that a Z code's not going to get us paid. Got to give them a diagnosis. 
They got it. And all of a sudden they have to have generalized anxiety disorder because if you're doing therapy and you want to get paid for it, you know, housing circumstance or relationship problem is not apparently doesn't. uh, Yeah. I don't know much about it, but doesn't get us paid. So you got to come up with something else. You got to change your order. Yep. And that's definitely documentation leading our, what we're doing. Sorry, that makes me one minute left. Yeah. Oh, that makes me feel better to hear you say it that way, because at least that way is a pre-existing problem within medicine that is being addressed that we can help lead the charge for. If it's about payment, I do understand why they're going to come after you. That doesn't mean sometimes I don't say I'm sorry. There's nothing else I can do at this juncture. Or like you said, that's when you start including things like adjustment disorders, which are billable and yet are not binding. Um, yeah, that's that's that's. A good, good it's been a clinical workaround. It's also the only one with no diagnostic criteria, which also gives you a little bit of room to play with. So that makes me feel better rather than your administration telling you to be a doctor, you need to hurry this up. I think what you're speaking to is a much larger component that this open note era may help drive some change. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about medical documentation, charting, and the era of open notes, part two, with our special guest, Dr. Tony Thrasher. Tony, thanks for joining us on this episode of Let's Get Psyched. It has been a privilege. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. And please, everyone, catch him on Psychiatric Times website with his uh, Mental Health Minute webinars. They're very interesting. Also, thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, you can write to us at getpsychedonkucrgmail.com. You can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform, as well as enjoy extended version of the show. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched. Okay, begin our extended episode. And Tosha, you'd have a question. You have a question. Okay, I just want to point out I just attended this conference by the um God, now what was it called? National Sciences Academy or something. It was um a, a conference that was addressing the youth mental health crisis. And it was just this Monday, um, and they talked about someone came on from California talking about dyadic billing and this movement um, to actually allow uh, treatment to be given in situations that involved, uh, you know, socioeconomic stressors, addressing that sort of thing without a diagnosis. So before a kid gets diagnosed with depression, if they are dealing with um, bullying at school, you can still give them treatment. That's lovely. And wait, yeah, when you say dyadic billing, dyadic does that also mean you can assign billing to two people in a dyad or no? <laughs> you can't have, they can't both be your patient. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, so, but what you're describing, Tosha, is so fascinating because that's, it's one reason I like talking about this is this is early in the era of the open note. So in my mind, we can choose to be reactionary and just wait and take whatever people kind of throw at us and dictate us, or we as, we as leaders, we as physicians and mental health leaders can get in there and start using this to our advantage to start driving that narrative. And that's a huge narrative. We meet people all the time that have, are having the worst day of their life that deserve every bit of respectful care that we would give to anybody else, even though they may never need our care other than that day. So how do you call that a diagnosis when it's just having that day at that time?